0: Welcome to Ethical Data Explained. Join us as we discuss data-related obstacles and opportunities with entrepreneurs, cybersecurity specialists, lawmakers, and even hackers to get a better understanding of how to handle data ethically and legally. Here to keep you informed in this data-saturated world is your host, Henry NG. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Ethical Data Explained. Today, we have a very special guest. He has a list of achievements longer than my right and left arm put together. He is an analytical and entrepreneurial leader, advisor, angel investor, with a passion for consumer intent, both direct and indirect, 20 years of experience overall in product business and corporate development, strategy and marketing. And I'm really excited to have him on today. Uh, He is the co-founder and CEO of Tempest. Uh, We have Michael Levitt joining us today. Welcome, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm uh, really excited to be here and talk with you. I'm glad we're we're very excited to have you. So, yeah, as as a starting point, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and a little bit about your background and how you became the the CEO at Tempest? Sure thing. Um, you know, careers are
1: what I'd call a little bit of a random walk. We all have intentions and want to appear smart that I had all of this planned, and the truth is it just kind of happened. So if you go back in time, I started off life as an engineer studied mechanical and environmental engineering and was coding for a while. And I'm a very competitive person. And what I realized is that I'm an okay coder. And so when you mix very competitive and okay at something, it doesn't go so well. So I did what any okay coder does. I went to business school. And so uh, after business school, I came out and wasn't sure what I wanted to do or how I should apply it. So I did what in the US would be called, took an undeclared major. I, uh, I went into management consulting. And in consulting, I was asked to go learn to program a new language. And I was pretty upset about this. I bitterly complained. Uh, you know, it's easy to go back in history and say, oh, you planned this. You were so lucky. No, I actually complained about the assignment I was giving. My assignment was to learn this language that at the time was called Oak and was later renamed Java. And that became Accenture or Anderson Consulting at the time's internet service or their, their practice. So one way you can say, oh, I planned it. I became the leader of one of the largest consulting firms in the world's uh, first internet practice. The other way is you can say, I, I was done with programming and I was asked to do more programming and was frustrated. And that really opened all kinds of doors and led to amazing places. Uh, it was not quite the birthplace of the internet. Frankly, I worked with internet technologies in, in uh, my engineering role prior to that. So it got started pretty early and did everything from e-commerce to messaging to search And uh, did some small companies, started some companies, raised a bunch of venture capital. And the story really gets interesting when uh, I discovered certain kinds of advertising technologies, uh, particularly around search. And what people don't always realize is that search has more intent data than just about anything you do. You're going through and you're searching with all these keywords that are things of interest. That's then being recorded in a profile for you. And that profile is then being used to advertise for everywhere you go. And we we tend to think of when we talk, we're giving up all this information. Well, when we type, we give up information. We're just not conscious of how relevant that data is. So I spent a while mining that information, frankly, making lots of money from doing that. And over time I realized I wasn't feeling good about what I did. And so I took a step backwards and said, instead of going and mining data, and getting distribution, getting people to use search and engage with it and give up data. I looked at it and said, I think it should be the other way around. I think I should spend my life finding ways of protecting users, taking care of them, educating them on your data is these bits of gold. And instead of you giving it all up, you should be aware of what you're giving. You should have certain rights and permissions. And I decided to start a company that's a search engine that doesn't just give up all of your data to third parties. And there are all kinds of interactions between search engines and third parties that we're often not even aware of and that the user should be in control and they should own their own data. And so I started a company called Tempest, been working on it for about five years, and we just launched our product uh, last month. So pretty excited to finally be out in the wild.
0: Yeah. I mean, from what you said, I mean not not throwing shade on anyone but it does sound like you're the reverse Zuckerberg of the world where you're trying to protect people rather than harvest that data and it's a great thing to hear and would you say that that's the kind of company mission and value of tempest what would or or would there be a more core value that you guys look at, look at at tempest
1: yeah, I, I think that, he, first of all, thank you. Um, putting me in the same sentence with Zuckerberg is an honor. Um, you know, clearly there are some things where we have different ideologies of data, but overall, I don't think he's a bad guy. Um, he's built an incredible platform and incredible scale. And today I look at search as mostly people have had to choose. You can go and you can use Google where you've got one of the best algorithms on the planet, lots of data and off it goes. And it gives you results that you as a consumer want. Or you can go have a private experience. And in a private experience, it'll be less than. And so I have to give up uh, relevancy. I have to give up interesting uh, results in order to keep my data my own. And frankly, it's a really crappy decision. I don't want to have to choose A or B. So our company, Tempest, our mission is really to take away that choice. We want to give you everything. We want the best of all worlds where a user is in control of their own data and they get results they want and that everything is kept and maintained private, again, while giving you those positive results. And it's really hard. But if you go back and you look at Google, uh, traditionally, Google didn't store nearly the level of data that it does today. Google really became dominant through browsers and through analytics, uh, a little bit less obvious. People tend to think of Gmail when I'm typing out an email that they're sucking out all that data. Google has come out and said that they're not using your personal identifiable information or uh potentially any data from gmail and so it's less the thing we think about it's more every time i'm surfing, uh the number one web browser is google chrome when i'm surfing around and i'm using chrome every click i have is recorded think of it as a giant piece of recorded recording software and with that recording it's learning about you and it's learning about what's going on the internet google used to have very relevant information and results prior to having all of that data so that's really Tempest's goal is to, in some ways, create the Google of the past where it was still extremely relevant, had great results for users, but didn't have all of that recording capability.
0: Well, then that makes perfect sense.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Soaks, a leading proxy provider, enabling your business to unlock the world of publicly available data. Get data at scale. Soaks data.
0: In this new kind of digital age, like in terms of privacy, what do you think the the relevance of, of privacy and, and kind of privacy privacy focused browsers are in solving things like data breaches? Um, I'm assuming from the the conception of Tempest, it's one of the most important things to you as an individual. Um, so yeah, what what's your kind of view on the market of, of privacy focused browsers overall? Yeah, so.
1: You know, there, there's a few people who've been staring at this a little bit, and really there's, there's two angles. There's angle number one where, where a company decides they are a search engine and that they're going to create a better search engine and DuckDuckGo is, I don't know how old, but they're probably going on 12 years old now. So they're, they're kind of the OG original gangster of, of private search. And so that's one area. And it turns out that consumers don't understand the difference between a search engine and a browser that well. And so if you're a search engine, you probably need to create a browser. Conversely, there's a a cadre of people who have started, or a cadre of companies that have started off as uh, browsers. And one by one, they may or may not be getting into search as well. And the two business models are very intricately related. So the question I always like to ask people is, what's the number two web browser? Number one is Chrome by, by leaps and miles, or leaps and miles and kilometers. Um, but number two is Apple, is is Safari. And that's if you're counting every device. If you're counting desktop devices, number two is Microsoft's Edge. So really, you've got these three devices or, or three browsers. But sitting beneath those things are a whole bunch of others. And traditionally, you had Mozilla, which is Firefox. And Firefox has done a reasonable job of taking care of the user. Now, there's there's some things and some add-ons where I don't agree with the direction they've gone and it isn't exactly private, but they haven't done a terrible job. The harder part with Mozilla is their market share has gotten fairly small. They have a rendering engine that sits beneath it. And everybody who has a website with any scale goes and tests it with Chrome and the rendering engine that sits under Chrome. And as a user, the single most important thing that a browser does is shows you the pages that you want to browse. And so it can be private, but if it's not showing you the pages you want, you can't really use it. So it comes back to what I was mentioning earlier of your goal needs to be giving users great functionality and being private and not making you choose between those two. And so Mozilla over time, I think, doesn't have a good enough browsing experience. So coming back to the question, you've got two angles. One side, you've got um, a search engine. The other side, you've got a browser. We at Tempest believe we have to do both, and I think everybody's getting there. Um, DuckDuckGo is building browser add-ons and they have a few browsers. Browsers are difficult because you need four of them. You need to have Windows, you need to have uh, Mac, you need to have iOS and you need to have Android. You need to do them all well. To put it in perspective, today if you were to open your most favorite browser that's your trusted source that you use all the time, the, the answer is most people don't even have one of those. A browser is the thing that works, it's a utility. But if you go into your browser, you'll you'll notice that there's something called incognito mode, and you think that'll keep me safe. Well, it turns out most browsers have a fingerprint. This fingerprint has all kinds of data in it. It has what operating system you are running? What operating system patches are you running? What language do you have? Uh, have you changed your language? Um, and then about thirty other things. What's the font that you, you default font you have? Default font size. And you put enough information in there and guess what? You're pretty identifiable from all of those things. So even when you're in incognito mode, you can be tracked almost perfectly for your data and for what you're doing. So think about that for a second. Take one of these big browsers. They're imminently trackable. You put it in quote unquote, it's its most private mode or incognito mode, you're still completely trackable. And so there's three or four browsers that are doing a decent job there. And I'll certainly put Brave on that list Uh, they're doing a a good job in in staying more private. So I'm excited that this is becoming part of a discourse and dialogue, that companies are doing a better job, and some of them you are having a really top-tier experience now. Um, So now the user has choice. We're excited that Tempest is part of that choice. We think we do a good job of integrating the browser and the search experience rather than you having to choose one or the other. But Few companies are doing a good job on browsers few companies are doing a good job on search and it's going to get really interesting when we all get pretty good at both
0: and just from that one statement you've answered my two next questions i was going to ask you about you know the the, the privacy-based browsers and why they're not more kind of open to general public and why people aren't using them and how you differentiate as, as tempest from the other privacies but moving on from that like obviously well, one if, of the... if i can interrupt yeah, for of a,
1: for a second on that um because I, I think there are a couple more interesting details there Users still don't realize so much that they have a choice in browser. I mentioned that, but, but I can't uh, harp on that topic enough. Someone can go download a browser, install it, and they have choice. So the reason why Microsoft has so much distribution is because when you buy a Windows PC, still Windows is the dominant desktop platform, it comes with Microsoft Edge. Now, the number one most downloaded thing after someone buys a new computer happens to be Chrome. There's a perception that Chrome matters. And if there's one thing consumers can take away is they have choice in that, in that decision, you don't have to use the browser that comes with it. And the browsers of today often are giant pieces of spyware. The other thing is they're, they're getting slower. So if you take something like Tempest, we started with Google Chrome. Chrome is an open source piece of software. We took Chrome and then we ripped out some of its guts, all those pieces that phone home that capture every click that are recording all of those things. We remove those. So at at its fundamentals, you're still getting a Google Chrome browser or a browser based on Chromium. Uh, When you take out all those other things, our browser is faster than Chrome. So you're getting all the benefits and goodness of Chrome with some of the speed. Now, there's two main browser platforms, or three. Um, There's one evangelized by Apple, which is WebKit. There is one evangelized by Mozilla and Firefox. And there is the one evangelized by uh, Google. We still think Google has a lot of advantages with some of its technology that lives there. And there's also some disadvantages in in terms of that privacy. So users can really think about that. I have a strong perspective. Clearly, it's biased because I'm running a company in this space. But encourage people to make this a considered purchase because it's important to your information and your data on a go-forward basis.
0: Okay. And I completely agree. and, And really kind of thank you for going in-depth um, to show our listeners exactly kind of what choices they, they can make. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, obviously from this being produced from a proxy company, uh, have used things like proxies and VPN uh, in their own time. Do you believe that you know proxies and VPN provide that same level of anonymity that you know privacy-based browsers can offer? Or is there a slight difference uh, from what proxies and VPN can offer from what something like Tempest can offer?
1: There's no such thing as a silver bullet in privacy. There's also questions of what really matters to you in privacy and why does it matter. Uh, A private search engine helps when you go through and you click on a result from a search engine, there's probably a certain amount of data leakage that's going from uh, the search engine uh, to the third party provider, especially if you clicked on an app. There is a certain amount of protection by using a private browser That browser, it may restrict your IP address, it may get rid of your fingerprint, it will do a variety of things that will restrict the amount of information that's leaking. A VPN will, or a proxy, will restrict your your native IP address. And so it will keep that private. There are certain uh, proxies, and I should know the answer about yours, apologies that I don't, um, that will rotate your IP address as you use it. And as you do that, that will further help and, and insulate. And you can use all of these together. And each, each time you layer, I, I always think of it like lasagna. Um, one of our product managers always talks about lasagna. And um, first of all, it's just delicious to me. But think about you've got your tomato sauce, then you've got your cheese, then you've got a layer of pasta, and then you've got some more tomato sauce and some more cheese. And you can just keep adding these layers. And, and the more layers, the better. It tastes better. And so if you could use a private search engine with a private browser with a proxy and VPN, the world gets better and better. Now, you have to be careful, just you don't want to spend so much time adding in so many things of, all right, I'm going on the internet, put on my gloves, oh, I need my my anti-static devices before I can go touch my keyboard. There's so many steps that it's not practical. But if you spend the time, do a little bit of work and, and have a proxy and go to the right search engine and use the right browser, and, and that becomes your behavior, it doesn't have to put in a lot of extra time and really takes care of the user's values uh, for a longer period of time.
0: So really it's about the users doing their due diligence in terms of what layers of protection they want to put in place um, rather than saying one's better than the other. It's like a collaborative workflow switch for our listeners. Right. Maybe it's definitely something we should start thinking more about beyond just the proxies and VPN side. So with, with Tempus as as kind of this a privacy focused browser. Uh, how do you ensure user privacy though? Like, if you're happy to go into more detail in terms of the technology behind it, like, how does it work to protect users' privacy? You said the browser, not the search engine, correct? Yes, the browser itself.
1: Yep. Um, so I mentioned earlier that we start with Chromium. And so that that is our, our kernel, the the basis for for, for uh Google Chrome uh, for our browser. Then um start off with Google does a hell of a lot of good work. So I don't I don't mean to cast too many dispersions here on Google. They're an amazing company. and They do a lot of good stuff. Um, they uh, put out all kinds of patches and increases and make it better. Those come out every two weeks. There's hundreds of engineers and it's open source. They don't tell you what they've changed. So when you go to create a, a browser, the first thing that you have to do is make sure that your browser is up to date if you're using Chromium, because the last thing you'd want is some great hacker has discovered an exploit in a browser that makes it hackable. Um, Google went ahead in Chromium in the core, and they made that change. And they did that two weeks ago. They pushed the new change out. And as someone who's building on top of Chrome, if you're not up to date with the latest, you have vulnerabilities. By the way, that's a massive challenge. That means we have to keep up with hundreds and hundreds of engineers code. And then we have to make change, incorporate our changes on top of their changes. So you, you have a giant set of challenges just doing that. So we we started off with building a piece of um, automation software that will compare the previous version to this current version, what's been done and can auto update most of the way. So we have a couple of engineers who all they do is update the Google Chrome core. So start there. Then you go through and you say, your browser has a whole bunch of attributes that go into your fingerprint. We go ahead and we standardize those going across all Tempest browsers. Um, so, uh, in ter- terms of what geography I'm coming from, we can pass that through. In terms of uh, what operating system parameters I'm having, so all Tempest browsers look the same. If you're going and browsing a site, it, it looks a little bit suspicious. Of why do all browsers happen to have all the same operating system patches installed? Why, why do they have? And within reason, by the way, there are certain things that we have to disclose. For example, language or font size. Those are things where we will have variants because you may want a different language than I want and I have a different font size than you want. So within reason, uh, we will go ahead and we'll pass everything through the same except for things that change your visual experience. And so it turns out that's really important to the tracking. Then we're going through and every site, every link we're going through and we're looking at the link basis. And uh, on those links, we're looking for things that um, have callbacks to ad engines. So those ad engines will have trackers and we we created a mini report card. And so if you mouse over on something you can see, is this an okay link? Is this a bad link? And we'll start informing users and things that are bad. We're gonna give something that looks like a pop-up that says, are you sure you wanna do this? Some people may say yes. And we we are firm believers of the most important thing here is user controls. Users may wanna go do things that are completely non-private and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, at the same time, if there's something that's not private, we want somebody to know that that's what's going on. We've detected that and we're going to give them that option. So we build in things like that. There's a hell of a lot of details in the code in how you do this, how you execute this, but getting rid of the tracking, getting rid of the fingerprinting, getting rid of the callbacks that record every click. Um, And some of those, by the way, are done uh, asymmetrically. So they don't affect your performance per se, but they do have an effect overall on your privacy. And so we're looking for every one of those things. And then the final thing that we do that's really important is we change the syncing system. So there's a hell of a lot of of websites now that will use the browser as an identifier to know, I know this user, whether that's through a cookie, whether that's through through some other mechanism. And so we built our own system for keeping track of the users. And there's some really nice added benefits to that. Uh, An example of that is uh, if I'm storing my bookmarks in my browser, Well, it turns out that those are shared across every device and that's built into Chrome. It's a pretty nice set of features. I want to share some of my information. But the moment that I'm sharing information between my devices, that means I'm giving the browser information about me. So we've gone and created um, universal identifiers that are unique to you, but know nothing about you. It just knows this happens to be Henry's device. And then we'll share that information across them, which allows you to share your bookmarks and, and other information.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like Tempest is, is really gunning for that balance between, you know, giving users the choice of, of whether they click on those websites or whether they share their data for their own benefit in, in some way, shape or form. Would you say there's any kind of barring what you've already mentioned? Any other ways that data might need to be shared from an analytics or other front that we haven't covered so far?
1: Yeah, there, there's lots of data that that needs to be shared. So it turns out that if you take away too much data, life gets really complicated and hard. And one of the big ones is passwords. And passwords in some ways are my nemesis. And every now and again, I think about, should we just go build a private password service? The truth is there's a lot of good password services out there that we just need to do a series of of great partnerships and haven't gotten to that point yet. We just got our product live in the wild. But if you think about it, you go land on some random website. Now we've made that website extremely anonymous. They don't know who you are. Largely, that's good. But certain websites will put up some kind of wall in front of you that says you cannot come in if you are completely anonymous. You need to have a logged in state. Meta or Facebook is a perfect example of this. I'm not going to get any benefits from my social network unless the site knows who I am. Now, essentially, I'm I'm throwing all privacy out the door because um, I need to let their servers and, and their site know who I am. Well, again, this comes back to what I said earlier. It's all about user choice. If the user decides they want to engage with Meta or Facebook, that's their choice. By the way, there's a lot of great content that users can get related to their friends. I I use those services. Are they privacy friendly? No, not at all. But I still choose to. So as a privacy company, we need to enable that. As a browser, we need to enable that. And we don't want a user to have to choose that every single time of what's my username, what's my password, Um, give permission to this. So that's another area where we have to make compromises and we have to say, user can set that, they can set it and forget it. And so password managers overall is a big category. Uh, The second really important category is ad blockers. Ad blockers um, are the number one, two, and three most popular extensions on most browsers. If you go through all all the add-on systems to browsers, Chrome and Chromium included, one, two, and three are all ad blockers. Um, massive amounts of volume. Consumers are clearly voting. I do not want to have that level of ad load. Um, uh, AdBlock and AdBlock Plus are interesting in this regard because they don't take away all ads. They take away most ads. There's a group called the Acceptable Ads Coalition where they go through and they're trying to figure out which data is acceptable. Um, ads turn out to be pretty important to the internet e- ecosystem to, to have a balance to take care of publishers who need that ad inventory in order to make money to create content is they'll make money either through consumers paying, most people don't want to pay for content, or through ads. And so I think that that acceptable ads coalition is an interesting balance. Yes, I'd prefer to have no ads, but I'd also prefer to have content. And so it's that balance of, I'll take ads that aren't offensive, that will still pay publishers enough that allow them the content. And so figuring out that balance there. And so your browser needs to work with the ad blocker to figure out what is an acceptable ad. How am I going to work with that? And then give you settings and controls in order for you to be able to, maybe there's some sites that they're still having too many ads and I I want to block everything. Put me in control of that. Maybe I I don't like this whitelist concept that I just want to block all ads. Okay. Then I can turn that on. And so what you're hearing from me is a variety of different pieces and controls. And again, it's up to the user to give them the power to own their own data.
0: And on that topic of like ads, Obviously, Tempest being that privacy browser, do you implement any type of kind of targeted ads or, or ad like ad selling uh, on Tempest itself, or do you have a, another monetization strategy that you've put in place?
1: Nope we we are ad driven. Um, kind of kind of ironic to have a privacy company that is ad driven. If you, if you, you know, I used to be a little more principled, as I would say, I'd come through and I'd say, we're going to have a paid search engine. We'll make money through users paying us and we'll have no ads and we'll have much better privacy. And it turns out the users don't want that. There's a sliver of a population that A is fairly wealthy um, and B is so passionate about this, frankly, the way I used to be. And what you realize is you're going to take out 93% of the world by doing that. 7% of the world may or may not. And it really depends by country and by lots of things, but in really high levels, about 7% of the world would consider paying for something like this. And I didn't want to go build a business where I started off excluding 93% of the world. And so Tempest is absolutely uh, funded by advertising. Well, how do you go and you do that advertising? Well, well, two important comments here. Number one, uh, for starters, our largest partner is Microsoft on this. So here here I, I said it, uh, the cat is out of the bag. I'm working with big tech. I don't have a problem with big tech. What we really need in order to have a reasonable business based upon advertising is scale. And there's only two ad networks that are keyword-based with amazing scale, Google and Microsoft. And we get to choose between the two. And neither one is bad per se. Microsoft just happens to be a little more flexible on how they would work with us. And so... We get keywords coming back from them. 100% of our targeting is based upon the keyword that you are searching for at this given time. So um, we have no memory in our advertising of what's been done in the past, and we never will. And we're also not giving it to any third party other than Microsoft, which is our ad partner. We have to send them uh, the keyword string. So we say, "User, user went and searched for XYZ. Microsoft gets XYZ. They get the market that that user is in because they need to know, is this um, someone in the U.S.? Is this someone in San Francisco? And we give them a general direct market agreement area. So that might be London. That might be San Francisco. So you're getting the area and you are getting the keyword string and nothing more. Why do we give them those things? Well, in, in America, there if you go search for Giants score, it turns out there's a baseball team here in San Francisco called the Giants. And it turns out that there's a football team in New York called the Giants. And depending on the time of year and the geography, the user may want to have a different result. And an advertiser may want to have a different result. So it turns out that geography is really important and the keyword string is important. But this lack of, of ongoing knowledge and targeting, we think is really important. It means we make less money, to be clear. If I held on to every search query and then used it in retargeting everywhere we went, we'd make more money but it violates the principles and ideologies that we founded Tempest upon. And so we're going to continue to have this ephemeral. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, ideology, and we can make enough money. Google used to be able to live on that and they did just fine. And Tempest will continue on that and we will commit to that we are not going to go further than that, even when we have our our, our level of success.
0: Great to hear. Great to hear. And during, obviously, the startup of Tempest and Having been on the advisory board for Dolphin since twenty fourteen, like what would you say was the biggest challenge and and kind of influences uh, to formulating and developing this privacy focused browser? Was it was it your time at Dolphin? Was it just your personal experience, or or does it go further than that?
1: So um, if you if you those of you who are on video can see the gray hairs here, um, and those come from lots of business challenges and lots of years at this stuff. And so 2014 is the John come lately. Uh, if, if we rewind the tape and we go back and we look at, um, frankly, my time at AOL. I joined America online or AOL in 2001. At that time, it was one of the largest, if not the largest internet company in the world. And I had the fortune or misfortune of uh, almost by accident being involved in a deal between AOL and Google. And we started distributing the Google toolbar. And so the way this worked is, AOL had the number one instant messenger, uh, AIM, as it was called, uh, with hundreds and hundreds of millions of users. And it was desktop software or laptop software. And every now and again, you'd need software update, much like you get apps on your mobile phone today. And we would push an update. And someone brilliant came up with this idea of when we push a new version of, of AIM, it would say, would you like to get the Google toolbar? And the Google toolbar would go and reset lots of your settings on your browser that Google was a great service. So we we were pushing a great service and people would start using it and then Google would pay us. And it turns out massive numbers of people switched to Google as a result of that. That made lots of money for AOL, that made lots of money for Google. So overall really good deal for, for everybody and consumers largely benefited, but it started this journey and this kind of data exchange where frankly I learned a lot of that value exchange and how it works. And today, I think browsers are the natural evolution of that. I didn't understand kind of what that deal really meant in a larger ecosystem with hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars changing hands based upon it and changing user defaults because users, as we start started saying a while ago, is that uh, a browser is utility. Users don't pay a lot of attention to it. And so if you give them some button that says change my utility and everything largely works similarly, users say, okay. And um, they hit the button that gets them to the cheese, gets them onto the next step um, so that they can go use their instant messenger. That hasn't changed a lot today. People are starting to understand more, they're starting to care more and, and that's great and that's exciting. And users, the, the, you know, you'll hear this constant refrain from me, users need to can, be considerate in these choices and these decisions. And for someone building a company around that, I decided I want to have something that's going to going to do well for users long term, rather than just have this. Give me another piece of cheese. Click through, off I go, and um, making it easier to have that cheese that users can have that positive behavior.
0: Amazing, and obviously that's where you know Tempest came from and where, where you started. Let's talk about kind of looking into the the future and and the upcoming you know six months a year. Now that you guys are kind of in the public domain what are some of the upcoming like features and updates for Tempest, um, on the roadmap?
1: Yep. So, um, you talked about VPN you talked about proxy. Um, we need to go do some partnerships to really integrate that tightly into a browser. We played with it a little bit. Um, we need to have a variety of options to, uh, to have that integrated in the browser. We think that that, that's an important one. Um, number two, um, we believe a little less in, in big bang launches where you, where you drop a bomb and everything changes. It's about incrementality. And so our search engine changes every day. Uh, it could be that we're, we have these things called wow tiles. So it turns out the number one or number two most popular search is weather. And what you don't want to see is 10 blue links when you go search for the weather. Um, you want to see a little sunshine or more often than not a, a little rain cloud, but no, nonetheless, Um, You want to see, pictorially, you want to see the weather. And so the more answers that we can give at the top of the mind, top of the page, the better. And so we're constantly working at those. And so it's a little piece of intelligence that's sitting there along with lots of content partnerships to go ahead and integrate those. So those are the biggest changes that you'll see on a day-to-day basis that almost nobody will notice because it's that embracing incrementality. The the big bang, drop a bomb on it, what's really going to change is about AI. And Microsoft has been doing an amazing job with ChatGPT in in capturing people's imagination and their attention. And OpenAI has been doing an amazing job at uh, building this incredible technology. That stuff is big. It's exciting. It's also really scary to me because when you start coming through with AI, this comes back to consumer expectations. Number one, what data is being collected? Uh, Not sure. Suddenly we have another layer of data it's potentially going to another third party, like the AI engine that's sitting behind it. Um, and consumers, when you give them one answer at the top of the page in the form of a wow tile or otherwise, you're giving them an, an answer. When you give someone 10 blue links, it kind of feels like go fish, you go figure out what's the right answer for you. When you give them one big thing at the top of the page, even if there's a bunch below it, it kind of feels like that big thing's the right thing. Well, what happens when AI is surfacing that? And uh, 72% probability that's correct. The user doesn't understand that we assign some probability associated with it. So the thing that we spend a lot of time looking at, thinking about pond- pondering is AI. And that's the one that's going to change the business. Candidly, we're going to be a little bit of a laggard on some of these things, because I think the technology is dangerous from a privacy perspective, and even more dangerous from an accuracy perspective, because if you're inaccurate and someone assumes that it is the correct answer, you're essentially a giant disinformation spreader or misinformation, I should say. And so we want to be very careful and consider. At the same time, it's something that I'm incredibly excited about and really nervous about.
0: Amazing. And I've got one final question that I'm sure a lot of users will, both uh, users and and listeners um, for Tempest and uh, proxies would like to know, like, what is your advice to the individual who's looking to protect themselves in terms of a, a privacy standpoint online? Well, other than the obvious, go download Tempest
1: today. Um, I, I think that, that every user has choice in this equation. A browser and a proxy I think are two wonderful places to start. If you're going to do nothing else, do those two things. Get a browser. By the way, most browsers come with a default search behavior. So take something like Safari. Safari by default is Google. Even though it's a decent browser, Google's pretty tightly integrated in that. You can change it, um, but go get a browser go install proxy, do those two things. I think you'll be in good shape. If you want to go on and take step three in your browser, think about what the default search engine should be. That gets a little more into nuances, but you can go ahead and choose that and change that. If you do those two things, you've largely taken control of your data. And so it's think about it, but a lot for a lot of consumers, you don't want to think too much. It's too painful. You just want to go and enjoy the internet, which is exactly what you should do. But if you take those three steps or even two steps, you're going to be in a much better, safe, safer place.
0: Brilliant. And to round off, like we always ask all of, our guests, we've got three core questions that we'd like to ask everyone. First one is who in the world of data or technology would you most like to take to lunch?
1: Who in the world for data or technology would I most like to take to lunch? Um, I think Tim Berners-Lee, who, uh, has done a ton for the internet. He, um, he really helped invent a lot of the standards that allow us to go in and roam the internet freely. And then he's done a lot in uh, continuing to maintain that through standards boards and bodies and keeps it, the internet more open than maybe anybody has done collectively or as a whole.
0: Uh, i like to call him Mr. World Wide Web <laughs> If the, for those who don't know who he is. Um, but no, I, that's that's a great answer. And beyond uh, the person, like what software could you not live without on a day-to-day basis? Could be an app, could be a software that you use for work, but what one thing makes your life a lot easier that if you didn't have it, yeah, you'd have to put in that extra effort every day?
1: So I did some thinking about this. I've heard this question from, from, uh, from other interviews you've done, and I came up with all kinds of what seemed like appropriate answers, but I decided that I'm going to choose the one that's that's applicable for me that maybe is a little less appropriate for a privacy-oriented CEO. Uh, I'm going to pick a Google property. Uh, Google has a flights tool. It's google.com slash flights, so it's on the web. And uh, Google bought a company that is in flight management, I love to travel. I've been all over the world, and it's funny as I'm also an environmentalist, so I care a lot about the planet. And so it's it's doubly embarrassing saying that a flight tool, is, flight tool, and Google um, are uh, is the thing that I choose. But the technology is so amazing to be able to go through and save you money, pick flights, look at destinations. It's just so well done. It's hard for me to say that I could live without that. And so it is the one that I have to pick, even if it doesn't necessarily align with all of my personal values.
0: We definitely won't judge you for that. I mean, like you said, you you work for companies in Europe and in the U S you're just doing your job half the time when you need to fly. Um, thing, I completely agree. Google flights is great. I've been linking it with using VPN. So checking flight prices from different countries and booking like that. It's always great fun. Um, always save some money that from that side. I genuinely thought you might go with the old GitHub, which I think 70% of everyone that has been on this podcast has gone with. Um, but it's great to hear something a little bit different. The final question we have is, when have you used data to solve a real world problem that you've had? Could be pro- professional or personal.
1: Yeah, so this, this one is the easy one and the hard one. Um, I use data to solve problems every single day, and it's a lot of fun to go do that. But uh, it's not necessarily easy. Um, I'll I'll choose the one that I that I use almost every day. Um, so we also have an apps business. Um, so we have uh, an app called Phoner. Um, Phoner is a private phone offering. It's frankly not as big. It's not the thing. That's our pole, but it's something I care about because um, I tend to like to use my phone. And depending on who I'm calling, if I don't know someone, if I'm calling a vendor, if I'm calling whomever, I want to be able to keep my phone number anonymous. And by the way, every now and again, a phone number gets compromised. It gets out there on the internet in some way, and then I'm getting spam calls. And so I want to throw away that phone number and get a new one. So we like that service a lot. The, The question is, how do you market phoner? And the truth is we got to go buy ads. It all comes back to ads. And so the the data problem that that we end up solving is called cac to ltv um this is a classic marketers problem so cac is the cost of acquisition how much do i have to spend to get a person to install our application phoner and you know turns out that number equals roughly 15 or 20 dollars. so we may spend 20 cents to get someone to click on an ad and this is all about statistics Um, And coming back to the, how are you using data? So you're going to use those statistics to look at that. And you're going to say 15 cents, but what percentage of this time does someone click through to our landing page? What percentage of those people then click through to actually install it? And so it turns out it's roughly $20 to get someone to install it. And then um, that's the CAC side or cost of acquisition, LTV or lifetime value. How much money do I make from a user using the product? Well, we have a, a monthly version of the product. We have an annual version of the product. We have to figure out what's the combination um, on average of what someone's going to do and how long are they going to stick with us? If somebody stays with us for 10 years, even at $2 a year, it means I make $20, I'll make all my money back. Um, or even if I charge $4 a year, now I'm getting $40. I really like, I spend $20 to get someone to, to uh, install the product and I get $40 out. And so CAC to LTV is the data or problem that we're using most frequently. Um, It's not maybe not the most interesting, but it's the most frequently. And for my world, you can go get more and more data sources and overlay all of those data sources that help in media buying, that can drive that $20 or cost of acquisition down. And, And that's really tempting. It's like a siren song. You're kind of being sucked in of it. Would you like to get more users for less money? Yeah, that sounds good. You also need to engage in ethical practices of how you're going to advertise and what data sources you're going to use. And so we're trying to practice what we preach when we're an advertiser. We're trying to not overlay too much data or buy data that we could use in those ways. And so it's a really interesting one. And so that's where problem solving comes into this. Uh, We're going to do this all the time we're going to problem solve of how do we still have a business, but how do we also treat customers with respect and use data that they've consented to rather than data that's been, been acquired through third-party means that we don't feel good about.
0: Brilliant. That's all we have time for today. I just want to say a quick thank you to Michael once again for for joining us and for sharing your thoughts. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and we hope that we can have you on again at some point in the future maybe when tempest is really full steam ahead and uh, we can get uh, an update from you personally
1: i would love that i thank you for the time and for putting this together i love the podcast thanks
0: brilliant guys thank you very much It's me henry ng signing off ethical data Explained. we hope to see you next time thank you very much Ethical Data Explained is brought to you by Soaks, a reputable provider of premium residential and mobile proxies, the gateway to data worldwide at scale. Make sure to search for Ethical Data Explained in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. On behalf of the team here at Soaks, thanks for listening.